my name's Nathan Wagnon. I'm on staff here at Watermark. I, I serve on the equipping team. Uh, I oversee the apologetics team, the great questions team, which is a lot of fun. That's probably one of the more fun things that I get to do. So whatever questions you guys have, in this class, we try to limit it to just questions you might have about Jesus, <laughs> but uh, not necessarily limiting it to that subject alone. But even if you have other questions and you're like wrestling through uh, questions about Christianity or whatever, come see me or come see us on Monday nights on the Dallas campus at 7.30 in the South Community Room or Tuesday nights at 7.30 at the Plano campus. We have this, the exact same group meets on Tuesday nights in Plano. Another opportunity that you might, I want to make you aware of before we start is uh, we have next Thursday, next Friday, actually the 15th, we have this new opportunity called an equipping webinar. Just by, I'm just curious, did anybody jump on that last time? Show of hands. All right, a couple of people. Perfect. All right, we're really trying to, we're really trying to push this. So a lot of people may not be aware of it, but I would highly encourage you to jump on it. Honestly, as someone who, um, as someone who thinks about God a lot and theology and thinking rightly and how to apply right doctrine to our lives, if I could force <laughs> everybody in this church, like all however many of us there are, if I could force everybody in the church to listen to this one that we're doing next week, I would. Because it's, it, I mean, in my opinion, it's that important. So it's a fun, it's a fun opportunity. You can register at watermark.org forward slash equipping. It's one of the uh, selections there. Just click on that and register. It's free. You can, whether you're at work, even if you're like traveling, if you're in your car, like last time my mom, who's in Arkansas, listened to it, and she, she listened to it by calling the number on her phone, and it was just like she was on a phone conversation for an hour. So you can listen to it if you're on the road, um, wherever. So definitely encourage you guys to check that out. And then uh, more pertinent to this class, I highly encourage you, and, and as, we, as we go each week, we'll uh, push out an email to you guys to kind of help track along and make sure if you miss something that you're getting the electronic version of all the handouts for tonight and you're getting uh, kind of information like like if a bunch more people show up in the next 10 minutes and this room swells then there, there's a, the potential that we may move over to the loft next week so like information like that so make sure if you're not getting the email make sure all the registration people uh, get your accurate email so we're not sending it to the wrong person or um, so we have your email and then uh, one of the other things is, is we'll, we'll be pushing out to you kind of a, a six-week uh, reading plan through Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew. This book was handed to me when I was in college by uh, one of my best friends. And it, as far as a, a great introductory work on the life of Jesus, this book is outstanding. It's, it's very easy to read. It's written on a, on a very accessible lay level. You're not going to feel confused, but it is going to challenge a lot of um, preconceptions. And frankly, it's going to challenge some preconceptions that will get reinforced. Uh, that, that challenge will get reinforced in this class as well as we, as we think more rightly about who Jesus was and who he is. So if you don't own this, I would highly encourage you to, to pick up a copy. We have some copies outside. I think they're selling them for 10 bucks or something like that, which is cheaper than you can probably get it online. And if, if they run out out there, let them know. We can order some more, or you can just, you know, go on Amazon and get your own copy. So if you read this in conjunction with this six-week class, I promise you it will enhance the experience of this class. Okay, any questions about that so far? Perfect. Okay, here's, here's what tonight's going to look like. It's 7.07 right now. We're going to go until 8.30. We'll hard stop at 8.30. Um, but I, I would encourage you, there's, there's a microphone right over here that has kind of a green band wrapped around it, and then Scott has another microphone. I, I know this is a large class, but I want to encourage uh, dialogue. So if you ever have a question as I'm going through something, please feel free to raise your hand. There will be a couple of different times throughout the class where I'll do what I did just a second ago, and hey, does anybody have any questions? Please do that. Basically, it enhances the experience for everybody. So it's, you're not just hearing me talking the whole time. I mean, I would tell you that's cool, but my wife might disagree with me, right? <clears throat> Did you seriously talk the whole time? So the first section we're going to go through is we're going to talk through some common mistakes about what, what people think about when they think about Jesus. And then we'll spend some table time where you'll discuss among your table kind of 
how you think about that, and then we'll come back and get some feedback from some people. And then, um, how many people in here unashamedly are kind of history buffs? You love history. Raise your hand. All right, sweet. You're going to like tonight, <laughs> okay, because we're going to walk through the historical background from Abraham to Jesus, okay, and it's going to be like drinking water from a fire hydrant, and, and that's okay. It's kind of the, my teaching style a lot of times is, it's kind of taking a bucket of plaster and you throw it at a, at a wall, and most of it falls down, but some of it sticks, and the stuff that sticks, you can build from. So, for, for those of you who do like history, and, and uh, this, this paper, the historical context uh, handout that's back there, would, if you don't have one, would encourage you to get that. You can, you can actually walk through and kind of follow along as I go. Um, I wrote this, I don't know, a decade ago. It's been c- gone through a couple of revisions to try to make it a little bit more accessible. I would also encourage you, a lot of times when we read things, we read just the body, and I would encourage you to read the footnotes uh, to stuff. So if you read something, I tried to fill in a lot of the color commentary on the background of even the stuff that's in the body of the text in the footnotes. So please um, go along and, and do that. And, and then after tonight, I'm sure uh, you'll, ha- you'll probably have a lot more questions, or hopefully tonight can whet your appetite for that, and you can read, the, read this paper a couple of times or however, however much you want, or you can use it to you know, wipe up spilled soda on your desk. I, don't, I mean, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> I do care, but whatever. So let me, uh, let me pray for our time, and we'll, we'll jump in. Well, Father, we are grateful for the fact that we live in a country that allows us to drive here and get out of our cars and come to a nice building, sit in a comfortable room with technology, and to do all of that without fear. And we remember all of our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have that luxury. We pray that you'd protect them, that you'd provide for them, that you would sustain them. And I pray that um, whatever, in whatever way the enemy is, is attempting to move, um, even in this, this room right now, because of the nature of the subject, I pray that you would thwart his plan pray that you protect us. I pray that um, whatever wrong thinking that we've thought about Jesus, maybe even our whole lives, that, that that would be corrected. I pray that whatever things that I say that aren't from you, I pray people would just forget it. But whatever things are said that are from you, I pray that that would sink deeply um, into our souls, that we would internalize it, that we would think rightly about Jesus and uh, and more importantly, subsequent to that, that we would follow him more deeply. We're grateful for your son, for the life that he lived, the death that he died, um, and, and the resurrection, the empty tomb, and the life that we have in his name. Bless the six weeks, we give it to you. Jesus told us very clearly that none of us should be called teacher. So there is no teacher but you alone. And so we humble ourselves before you and we offer you this time. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Here's some common mistakes that people make when, when we start talking about or thinking about Jesus. And the first one is called, I like to just call it imaging Jesus. The interesting thing, and we'll get to talk about this around our tables here in a second, but the interesting thing about Jesus, when, when you go into various cultures, and I, I remember this growing up, I played football, and then I was also in the military, so I've been in some more like high testosterone environments, right? And it's, it's interesting when you get in those, it's funny, with all the football guys that I was around, Jesus very much looked like a football linebacker. It was like, hey, what's Jesus like? He's like a linebacker, just sacks the quarterback, it's awesome, you know? And it's like, okay, that's, that's Jesus. Um, and then I go into a military environment, and guess what Jesus looks like there, right? He looks like a Green Beret. <laughs> and, and then you go into um, whatever context. And typically, the people in that context, the Jesus that they think about and worship looks very strangely like themselves. <laughs> and so uh, the, probably the most common mistake that, that we make, I mean, think about in, in culture today, 
you know, some of the, some of the social battlegrounds that, were, that, that uh, get talked about in the public square right now regarding, like, the whole, like, love wins idea um, with, with the kind of uh, gay rights movement. How many times have you been a part of a conversation where it's just like, hey, Jesus loves these people. Jesus is for these people. Jesus is. And so uh, what everybody's doing in the entire world is ripping off Jesus and then trying to elevate him to be their greatest advocate. And so one of the primary questions that I talk to people about when, I'm, when I ask them and try to probe into just their spiritual life is, is I say, hey, um, do you be- are, are you Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. And most of us would be like, okay, great. You know, but there's a really appropriate following question and that is, okay, what's your Jesus like? When, when you talk about Jesus, what is the type of Jesus that you're talking about? Um, and so everybody does this. There's no, way that we, that we can't, there's no way we can avoid this because we come to the table with our own lens, our own preconceptions, our own background, our own experiences, our own everything. And so what we try to do, and hopefully tonight will be a small step in the right direction, is what we try to do as, as a biblical exegete, or as, as a, someone who is, who's interpreting the text of the four Gospels, is we need to try as best we can to take out our, or take off our like Western, individualistic, kind of self-centered type uh, glasses, and put on kind of an, an ancient Near East communal type glasses that whereby we can view the life of Jesus through um, what actually was happening and not read into his life all of the things that we experience on a day in and day out basis. Right? That's, that's one of the, the keys in thinking about Jesus rightly is to minimize your footprint and really in a, in a large sense, and you'll get this from me as, as a go over the next six weeks, is that I'll do the best I can to try to, to try to use terminology like, hey, if you were there, if you're following Jesus, this is the kind of sense of, uh, that his disciples are experiencing in this moment. These are the people he's talking to. This is why they're saying what they're saying. This is why Jesus is responding the way that he is. This is the implication for what he's doing, what he's teaching, um, why he's acting the way that he's acting. And so, if we just read the Gospels through our own Western individualistic lens, then you are going to, in a way that's really unhealthy, you're gonna, the, the picture or the image of Jesus that you have is going to be largely inaccurate, which frankly is going to cause you to worship a God of your own fancy. You're going to worship a God like you, would, like you would have him instead of the way that he actually is. Right? And that's really dangerous. So hopefully this class can be at least, a, like I said, a step in the right direction. Typically, people in, this, in the same vein of that, people tend to overemphasize one aspect of Jesus' person at the expense of the other. So again, the whole love wins thing, right? You, you're emphasizing one aspect of Jesus, namely the fact that he engaged with sinners in a very loving way at the expense of the rest of the story, which is he engaged them in a loving way to call them out of their life of sin to repent and be reconciled to God. So you overemphasize one aspect that you really like at the expense of the other one that makes you really uncomfortable. Let me say this, cardinal principle of Jesus studies. If the Jesus that you're thinking about does not make you uncomfortable, that's not the right Jesus. Did you catch that? If the Jesus you're thinking about does not press into you and make you uncomfortable in areas, you're worshiping the wrong Jesus. As somebody who's followed Jesus for almost three decades, I will tell you, um, Jesus is, in a, in a large part, and in, in, not even a large part, he is, he is by far the most complicated human individual that has ever lived. And he has a way of pressing into my space. He makes me uncomfortable. And, and frankly, that's a good thing because it's space that needs to get pressed into. It needs to be overtaken. It needs to be corrected. And then lastly, thinking about Jesus in a vacuum. This is probably the most common thing that I see among uh, most people who are thinking about Jesus is they just simply lack, um, the, they, they simply lack the story or an understanding of the story to actually place Jesus into. And so they just read the Gospels thinking, Oh, yeah, all of this is 
Of course, <laughs> people back in the day, you know, d- drove on roads and ate at McDonald's, and, or not McDonald's, Chick-fil-A. <clears throat> people ate at Chick-fil-A, and, and uh, you know, we just read our own experience into the Gospels, and so when we see things and we lack the historical or the, or the contextual appreciation, then a lot of times we just end up making really basic, simple elementary mistakes that we don't need to make. So here's a couple of them. I'm talking about imaging Jesus. Here are just a hand. I mean, I did like maybe five. You, know, you could just go do like, you could literally just type in Jesus on Google and then do the images thing and see what pops up. That's literally all I did. Jesus, boom. What the heck? You know? So we got black Jesus. This is, this is, uh, this is the black Jesus. The, um, we got overly effeminate Jesus. That's kind of like, not really sure what's going on there with, with that Jesus. And then, and then the further you move to the West Coast, and especially the, the, uh, the Pacific Northwest, you got weed Jesus, you know? This is the person who's like, man, he's like, he's like, <clears throat> he's like, greater love has no one than this that passed me the doobie, you know? <clears throat> you got weed Jesus. You got cheesy Jesus. These are the people, <laughs> like, how many of you guys have seen, uh, I think it was Bill Maher, somebody did that film, uh, Religulous or whatever. Have y'all you, have you ever seen that before or know, know about it? So the, these, are, these are the type, the people who have these things in their, in their house or whatever, these are the people that a lot of times the secular skeptics and, and uh, those type of people are going after because you're just an easy target, you know? Don't, don't, have an, don't have a cheesy Jesus statue in your house, please. I mean, you can do whatever you want, but uh, yeah. Then, you've, then if, 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 you're, if you have a little bit of a darker side, then, you, then you've got Jesus arm wrestling this, you know, Satan figure where it's kind of this dualism, you know, who's going to win the fight. But Jesus is this, you know, uh, arm wrestling man figure who's going to ultimately win. And then if you tend to be a little bit more of like a, you know, have a little more testosterone and you, then you've got like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like bodybuilding Jesus, you know. Where, where uh, he's, he's, he's not just dying on the cross, he's crushing the cross, you know. He's, he's, uh, and his biceps are huge, and, you know. So one of the things that I, because I, I think it's a fascinating question, and it's, and it's a fun way to start the class. It's a fascinating question to say, hey, when you, when you close your eyes and pray, and, and some of you may pray to the Father, some of you may pray to the Spirit, but a lot of people pray to Jesus, you know. And, I, and that's okay, like, all of them are God, um, and there's one God. So when you pray to Jesus, when you close your eyes and pray to Jesus, who do you see? Like, I think that's a good question. It's really interesting, right? Um, how do you image Jesus? I mean, uh, there's, there's a bunch of different images of, of Jesus right here that, that get propagated by various groups. Like I said, we all image Jesus in some way. But, but I think that it, it's, it's good and healthy for us to think about what, what would Jesus have looked like? Um, because a lot of times we get the kind of the, the Victorian um, Jesus that, that uh, has the long flowing hair and he's a really attractive Caucasian male, you know. And, and uh, probably we, most people think of him as like a taller person. Um, and, and frankly, that's just not the Jesus of history. Like Jesus was a Jew and he was born, um, he was born in between 6 and 4 BC, which we'll get to here in a minute, in the midst of a really tumultuous political environment, and, and he worked with his hands a lot. He probably worked out in the sun. He was probably e- either a stonemason or a carpenter, depending on the job, and so his, his, his skin was probably weather-beaten. Um, don't, don't even know about, like, the, 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 his hygiene. I mean, <laughs> he probably didn't bathe a whole ton, definitely not once a day the way we do, you know. They just didn't do that back then. And, and uh, you know, his, his feet were probably dirty. He probably, if you walked up to him, didn't have the, the necessarily the greatest odor in the world, you know, that these guys didn't wear deodorant. I mean, and so, and frankly, too, he, he probably was less than six feet tall. I mean, the, the average height of a Middle Eastern man in the first century was, is, was somewhere between 5'5 five five and 5'10, five right? So he's probably middle-sized guy, and... He definitely didn't. He definitely was not a Caucasian man, right? He didn't have, probably did not have long flowing hair. So, this next picture I'm going to show you is not necessarily. I mean, this is this is just an image, right? But 
What some people did is they, uh, based on a bunch of different forensic evidence, they basically took characteristics of a Middle Eastern Jewish man in the first century, and they, they just kind of typed it into their computer and wrote some algorithm that put all that stuff together, and this is what popped out on the other side. So this is forensic Jesus, okay? And most of the time, when, pe- when we're thinking about Jesus, that's not typically who pops into our mind, right? And yet, I think, I told my wife this over dinner tonight, um, she's like, hey, you thinking about a lot? And I was like, well, yeah, I am about to go teach this class. And, and uh, I just said, you know, I think what's interesting about Jesus is I think if you take 10 average um, Middle Eastern Jewish men in the first century and put them into a police lineup, we would, we would not be able to pick out who Jesus was, right? He's just an average dude. And in fact, you, you look at the Gospels. I mean, one of the, uh, unless Jesus was wearing his robe, that designated him as a rabbi. It's not like we had like CNN and Fox News and all these cable channels that were around all these villages so that we knew what he looked like. A lot of times he would come in and people would, would have to see like, oh, which one, which one is he? Oh, he's the one wearing the tassels and the robe of a rabbi, right? And so that, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of imaging that goes on there that's, that's just, uh, I think, really important for us to think about in order for us to accurately put ourselves into the midst of the story, that uh, when we talk about the historical Jesus, that, that ultimately, and you, as you guys know, this being a Christian um, class, that, that we believe that this, that this man was God in the flesh. And so that's just an interesting um, way, w- by way of introduction, to think about what we think about when we think about Jesus. So it's about 725 now. We'll go till about 735 or 740. So I want you to take the next 10 or 15 minutes, and I want you to circle around with your table. Uh, I want you to discuss amongst yourselves, like, hey, how do you guys think about Jesus? And, and what did Nathan just say that might have challenged that or reinforced it? I don't know, but y'all take the next 10 or 15 minutes and do that. <laughs> All right, hey, so before we move on, before we move on, I'd love to get some feedback from you guys. What 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 y'all's conversation look like? Any anybody that was like, man, that was revolutionary, changed my life. I want to talk about it, or anything less than that is also acceptable. <laughs> yeah, hey Scott, can you run around with the mic, please? Well, we're we're recording it, so when people listen to this in the future, we want to hear your we want to hear your sweet voice. <laughs> What's your name? Don, hey, everybody listen to this in the future. This is Don. <laughs> All right, Don. Uh, my question is, is that, uh, well, I was thinking, one of the first things I brought up was when I pray, I don't ever think of the image of Christ. Yeah. At all. What do you think about? Uh, just confessing my sin and uh, other praying for other people and I guess uh, uh, praying about tomorrow, I guess. Yeah, yeah, great, great. That's perfectly fine. And then I also had a question about, uh, you're probably going to cover this later in the class, but uh, let's say I was to die tonight and I was going to be in, in front of the Lord, mm-hmm. I mean, between the Emerald Throne and, and his glory, will I be able to even see what he looks like? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There's, well, let me, let, me answer it. <laughs> let me answer it like this. I've never died before, so <laughs> what I'm about to tell you is a guess. But uh, what we do know is, because most of the time we think about heaven, we think about what you just said. We describe it in terms of an emerald a throne and like the celestial city and streets of gold and ha- uh, highly metaphorical language that typically shows up in, in what we call a genre of apocalyptic literature. And um, I don't want to, that's a bit of a side trail that I don't want to necessarily go down right now. But, but uh, I, if I can serve as a bit of a corrector for us, there's... There's, there's, two, there's two things when we think about heaven we should think about. One of them is the new heavens and the new earth, which is when most people think about the eternality of heaven, that's what they're thinking about is the new heavens and the new earth. And I would say this about the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth will be material. It will be a new earth, right? So it'll be this, but just not broken. It'll be this, but no sin. Most, most of the time people think about, well, I die and I turn into some, cor- some sort of like weird Cupid where I fly around and shoot love arrows at everybody else. And it, uh, we kind of sing, I could sing of your love forever, forever, you know? And it's like, oh my gosh, that's not heaven, that's hell, you know? <laughs> but 
but I think when, when, when the New Testament, and frankly, the Old Testament as well, but, but specifically the New Testament, when it talks about heaven, it's talking about an, a, a redeemed, unbroken, material world that's just like this one, but un, unbroken by sin. So there will be trees. There will be a building. You'll have a house. You'll sleep. You'll eat food. There will be a hierarchy of government, right? And so that, that's the eternality of heaven. And, and in that heaven, like, it, the, there will be a hierarchy of government. It's just that Jesus is the king. But then there's also what is the other thing that a lot of times people think about. It's what theologians call the intermediate state. And that is when you die, where does your soul, soul go prior to your, your physical resurrection that, that begins the, the eternality of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 20? And, and so um, I, I know for sure, I, I think, you know, when Revelation talks about it, you know, it says um, we'll, we will see him face to face. Whatever um, sin that would be there that would, that would block us from the glory of God is no longer there. And so there's an intimacy that's associated with, it's not, I'm not fleeing the glory of God because of the wrath of God for my sin. I'm drawn close to him because I'm his son. And he draws me close just like I draw my son close, right? And I experience what I was created for. And that is un- uninhibited, unbroken relationship with the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's a three, four-minute answer to your question to say, yes, you can see God. And frankly, I was talking to this table uh, over here, and, and I, I was just saying, hey, I, I, do th- I think it's okay if you don't picture anything at all. But for me, it's helpful because Jesus was a man. And, and one of the primary things about the incarnation is that Jesus comes to the earth to relate to us, right? So that we can see him. I mean, I, I'll, I'll get to this in, in subsequent weeks, but, but the, the miracle of the incarnation is, is a God who is, who is pure spirit and prior to the incarnation had no physical human body, becomes a human. What the heck? Like, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I mean, that's like, it's the, the miracle of the incarnation is unfathomable. The, because the creator of the universe, the one who commands everything, is standing in front of you. And so for me, it's helpful when I picture, and I know that my image of Jesus is, is not 100% accurate, right? But I, I think that's okay. It, but it helps me because it makes God, who is, who is spirit, relatable to things that I know, right? Which, which, frankly, is the entire point of the incarnation, is that Christ became human um, so that we could see him. That's the whole point of, of, uh, of John 1.14. And, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw him. Right? He's one of the, the, uh, as, as of the only begotten from, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, uh, 1 John chapter 1, he says, I'm writing these things to you about the things that I've seen with my eyes that I've touched with my hands, that I've heard with my ears concerning the word of life. He's talking about human senses, sight, sound, touch, smell, taste, right? Um, he's experiencing God in, in, a, in a very unique way because Jesus is God. And, and so it helps me to think about an, an, uh, an image of Jesus because um, I think in a very real and in a historical way, Jesus is God come near to us. So that's, that's what I would say. I hope that helps or hurts. So you're know. saying, so you're saying like the, uh, 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 the Abram and the Abraham and the, uh, burning bush and the, uh, feast of tabernacles or Moses uh, and the burning bush and, and, and the, the transformation of, uh, you're saying all of those happened in a fallen world. Therefore, his glory is shining over all of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think you see, I think you see the father, um, or I think you see God uh, in the Old Testament progressively revealing himself to his people. Um, I think one of the primary reasons that he does that is because y- you can't drop the bucket on people all at once. I mean, it, it, we can't handle it. And so um, that's why in, in he, at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, it says um, God has revealed himself through the law and the prophets on down through the history of Israel. But he has revealed himself fully and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, hey, sh- uh, one of his disciples said, hey, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, seriously, I've been with you for so long, and you still don't know. If you've seen me, you've what? You've seen the Father. 
So, which is why there's a great little video but, um, that, that Igniter Video put out. But it just said, hey, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Right? Which is why I love this class. Because um, Jesus is um, God in the flesh. Okay, anybody else? All right, sweet. Because we don't have really have time to do that any more of that anyway. So let's drive on. All right, so now kind of fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to go through a ton of stuff really quickly. If you have questions, please raise your hand. All right, so around 2100-ish B.C., a guy named Abram was born in the Sumerian city of Ur. And in, in the future, I should probably attach a map so you can kind of track along with what I'm doing, but <laughs> sorry. In 1546, uh, so I need to fill in some gas there. So Abram is born in the Sumerian city of Ur. Um, the Lord calls him out of Ur, of, of the Chaldeans, which is kind of the uh, pre-Babylonian tribes, and, and into Canaan. So, and which is interesting because uh, do you know how God first reveals himself to Abram? He reveals himself as El, who is the, the chief deity in the Canaanite cult. So Yahweh is revealing himself to Abram um, in a way that Abram can process and understand. So God is saying, hey, I'm, you know this God that you've been worshiping? I'm him, right? And, and so Abram's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll follow you. And so Abram goes into uh, what, what's modern-day Israel, and uh, he has many sons, right? Abraham, you know, Father Abraham had many sons. <clears throat> I grew up Southern Baptist, don't judge me. <laughs> and many sons had Father Abraham. <clears throat> so, yep, thank you. <laughs> so let's just praise the Lord, right? Okay, yeah, thank you. <laughs> So anyway, he goes, he has, he has uh, sons. One of them is uh, Ishmael, and Ishmael becomes the father of the Arabs. And his other son is Isaac, and Isaac becomes the patriarch, uh, follows the patriarchal line to be the father of the, uh, the Jews. And so that fight's still going on. <clears throat> anyway, uh, Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, his 11 sons, really his 10 sons, uh, sell the 11th son into slavery, into Egypt, a guy named Joseph. If you read the book of Genesis, that's what this is all about. And then Joseph moves down into Egypt, kind of takes over everything. The Lord Yahweh blesses him, um, elevates him to power. And then where there's a famine in the land, and uh, uh, Jacob's uh, remaining uh, 11 sons come down to Egypt to get food, and Joseph um, sees them, recognizes them, invites them, forgives them, that's a critical part of the story, invites them down into Egypt, and uh, they settle there in the land of Goshen, which is this real fertile land. And then over the next 400 years, the descendants of Jacob, or Israel, become, uh, they, they grow, the Hebrew people grow, and then ultimately they grow to the point where the pharaohs, uh, they're, they're growing so much that the pharaohs are becoming nervous, and they're going, hey, we can't do this anymore. They're going to outnumber us, they're going to overpower us, so let's enslave them. So they did, they enslaved them. And for the next 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt. They continued, there was, it's interesting because there's an assimilation period that takes place there as well. Um, you got to understand, when you live in a place for four centuries, you start to think and act like the people that you live among, which is why there's so many similarities in the Genesis account with other uh, Egyptian creation myths. But that's a whole other thing we could talk about another time. Anyway, so these people are, are, are uh, kind of, uh, tr entrenched in, in uh, Egypt, and yet there's a faithfulness that, that there's a faithful stream that remains with them as well, where they're like, no, we're still going to cry out to Yahweh for him to free us from this enslavement. And so Yahweh hears them, and then he sends his prophet Moses, and Moses, through a really powerful show of force by Yahweh, around 1446-ish, Yahweh leads his people out through his prophet Moses you know, go watch like the Prince of Egypt or something like that. You know, that's, that's kind of that story. And, and uh, with a strong hand, Yahweh uh, brings his people up out of slavery and liberates them, okay? This becomes, if you talk to a Jew anytime ever, right? The Exodus is the most central and important event that takes place in the Old Testament, period. Nothing even comes close to it, right? We were enslaved, um, our God came in a very personal way, intervened, destroyed the Egyptian army, and liberated us and set us free. That's the Exodus. Um, 
the Israelites wander for a little while. Frankly, a little while is like 40 years because they disobeyed. Read the Old Testament. And then in 1406, the, uh, uh, Moses dies. His successor, Joshua, which um, uh, literally means to save, all right? uh, the, the Aramaic uh, um, or the, the Hebrew word Yeshua, Joshua, to save, right? It's Jesus' name. Um, so Joshua, Jesus' name back in the day was just Joshua. We transliterate it and it becomes Jesus for us, but it's just Joshua. So Joshua leads the, the Israelite people into Canaan and begins this conquest where, where, where the Lord says, hey, I want you to either... Uh, um, either, either the people in front of you will convert to me or you'll drive them out, right? But I'm going to give you this land. And ultimately what he's telling them is he's saying, I want you to be a kingdom of priests for me. It is your job to image me. So talking about imaging God. It's your job to image me to the rest of the world so that they can see my character, my nature, so that they can turn to me and return to me away from their rebellion. That was Israel's responsibility as a people. They're not set apart in this small tribe of people so that they can be special. They're set apart so God can use them to image himself to the rest of the world. Right? The nations, all of the nations, were always God's intent. Israel had a special role in that. Well, guess what they didn't do? They didn't obey, right? <laughs> which is a common theme in everybody's life forever. And, and so the, the Canaanite con- conquest ultimately fails and the pagan people assimilate into Israel, and they also assimilate in their pagan practices. The worship of, of, the, worship of the Baals, um, the worship of Asherah, the worship of all these high places where people would go and would, would worship other gods other than Yahweh. And so what Yahweh did, starting around 1360, is he started to use some of the tribes that encircled and that sometimes even were among the Israelites, and he used those people to basically uh, enslave or uh, oppress the Israelites until the Israelites would be like, okay, 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 we get it. Send us a, send us a, a, a savior. And so Yahweh would send them a savior in the form of a judge, and that judge would push out those tribes and liberate the tribes of Israel where they were functioning as independent, like autonomous tribes again. And then guess what they would do? They would turn right back to worshiping pagan gods, and he would send another he would send another uh, you know, a tribe to oppress them, and then they would cry out. Um, and so there's this cycle of disobedience that, uh, whereby the Lord sends a judge to liberate them, and then ultimately you know, they cry b- back out to the Lord and are reconciled to him. Well, <clears throat> um, one of the problems was, as, as Israel is in this time, they're, they're saying, hey, it would be better for us, for us to have a king, because they were, they were operating as independent tribes. And so they were like, we, we really need a king to unite everybody. And so they cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, give us a king. He first gives them Saul. Saul's disobedient, and so he passes on the anointing to David, and David becomes the king of Israel. The thing that's unique about David is that the Lord makes a covenant with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where basically he says, your line, the Davidic line, will perpetually rule on the throne in Israel. In other words, uh, someone who's the king from the line of David will perpetually be the king of Israel. And, and so when Jesus shows up, when he starts to use terminology like, I am the son of David, then he's, he's using that um, as a messianic claim and ultimately as his claim to sit on the throne in Israel. When David dies, Solomon becomes king. Solomon does a lot of building projects. And then when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes the king and Rehoboam is an idiot. And the, you, you, begin to, you begin to see this long line of, frankly, idiot kings. And they, uh, Rehoboam basically had an inferiority complex. The elders came to him and said, hey, your father Solomon was great. Just keep doing what he was doing. And he was like, whatever. My, father, my, dad, was a, my dad was a pansy. I'm the man. You know? And so the elders were like, okay, that's not okay. And so um, the kingdom split. And they pulled, the elders went and pulled this guy out of exile in Egypt, his guy named Jeroboam, which was a mistake, because <laughs> Jeroboam was worse than Rehoboam was, right? And Jeroboam goes up, and he begins to reign as the king over the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. And then, Re- and then Rehoboam becomes the king in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, or Judea. So now, it, now the 12 tribes, they had a king, and now they have two kings, and they're split into two kingdoms. Right? Which, which 
obviously inherently weakens their position, which opens the door for countries like Assyria in 721 to come down through a series of, of, uh, through a series of, of campaigns against the northern kingdom under, a, under a, an Assyrian king named Tiglath-Pileser III. You've got to be real confident to name your kid Tiglath Pileser III, which I'm thinking about doing if we have another son. <laughs> hey, Tiglath, you know, come here. But he's been dead a long time, so I can make fun of him. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't make fun of him. But he weakens the northern kingdom, and then a guy named uh, Shalmanasar V comes in and actually sacks Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, and he deports. He takes the northern kingdom off to Assyria. So the northern kingdom doesn't exist anymore, which guess what that does? That opens the door for armies to come down and knock on the door in Jerusalem, which in five, starting in 605 but culminating in 586, uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, right? You guys ever heard of this guy before? Nebuchadnezzar now marches down. Babylon had defeated Assyria. That's a whole other story. But Babylon defeats Assyria, and then they come down and knock on the door in Jerusalem. They're um, a handful of times that, that that battle takes place, but then ultimately um, the Babylonians sack Jerusalem, they take the city, and then they carry off uh, the Israelites, um, n- now not to Assyria, but all the way to Babylon. Okay? And so now the nation of Israel doesn't exist anymore. Right? Now, when you read the prophets in the Old Testament, you're, you're reading typically uh, the prophets in two different historical contexts. About half, maybe a little less than half, of the prophets are writing during the time of the Assyrian oppression. And so they're calling, for, they're calling for the Israelites to repent so that the Lord will come and rescue his people and drive out the Assyrians. Which, frankly, it happens. It happens during uh, Hezekiah's reign when Isaiah is the prophet. And, and uh, another Assyrian king named Sennacherib comes all the way down to Jerusalem and his entire army sieges, is, is besieging the city, Right? And Hezekiah is, is behind the walls going, I don't know what to do other than to call on the name of the Lord. Man, you know, good of you, good of you to think of that. Um, uh, but, but it's interesting because most of the time, like, that's not where we start. It's where we end. We'll exhaust all other options before we finally turn to the Lord and go, well, I guess you need to do it. You know? <laughs> and the Lord's like, you may want to start with me. You may want to lead with that. Um, but, but, but finally, Hezekiah cries out, and, and, uh, and the angel of the Lord comes in and overnight, overnight, wipes out the entire Assyrian army, right? And Sennacherib goes back to his capital city with his tail tucked between his legs. And then a little bit later, his son assassin- assassinates him, right? It's like, man, what in the world? So the, the, the Israelites, the, the prophets are writing during this historical context, and they're calling for the Israelites to repent. So they're either writing during that time of, of the Assyrian oppression, and, or they're writing primarily during this Babylonian oppression. Um, like, Babylonian is sacked, and uh, Jeremiah is writing during that time, which, which is why most people call him like the weeping prophet, right? He's, he, his, 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 uh, his writing is very somber, sad, depressing. Because it would be like ISIS coming into the United States, systematically destroying all of our major cities and carrying off all of our wives and children and, and prominent people to the Middle East where they oppress them, right? That's probably like a, f- a fairly fair, like, modern-day equivalent. Not exactly fair because ISIS is, is a little, uh, well, in some ways more brutal than the Babylonians, but the Babylonians are pretty jacked up. Anyway... Like, how would you feel? What would your literature that your nation produced produce during that time? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? And so Jeremiah's called the weeping prophet, but I'm like, dude, I'd be crying too. Anyway, he takes off. He, he goes to Egypt, which would be like us going to like South America or Mexico or something like that. Like, we just take off. And, um, and then a handful of guys actually go into exile. Um, guys like Ezekiel go into Babylon and are ministering during, the, the, during that exile time. Well, guess what? Babylon doesn't stay Babylon for long. The Persians, the Medes actually conquered the Persians and become the Medo-Persians, and then they conquer Babylon. And when they conquer Babylon, a guy named Cyrus in 539, actually his edict for them to return is in 538, but he actually says, hey, you guys can go back home, right? And so Cyrus, under his rule, the Jews begin to return 
to Jerusalem and like this is where you get the book of Nehemiah where they rebuild the wall. This is where you get the book of Haggai, Zechariah, um, Malachi. They're all during, uh, written during the return of Israel to Jerusalem. Okay, that's basically the Old Testament, all right? And I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a few minutes to just kind of hit pause and let you catch your breath for a second and ask, ask any questions. So anybody confused about anything or need clarity on anything or... What's your name, brother? Nathan. Nathan. Dude, awesome name. <laughs> um, was it 430 years or just 400 years, or does that really matter? In, in, in Egypt? Uh, yes. Uh, 400-ish years. Okay. And, I, and I, I mean, d- counting years back that far, it, um, it, there is a science to it, but, but it's an approximate science. There are some, some things um, are, are tells for us, but... Um, it's around 400 years. Okay. Thank yep. you. That's okay, cool. Anybody else? Okay, well, let's keep going. So, in skip down a couple hundred years, right? But in 331, Persia falls to Greece. This is, um, this is the rise of, and a little bit of backstory on that too. There's a guy named uh, Philip of Macedon, Philip II of Macedon. So, just like Israel were tribes, Prior to them having a king, the Greek city-states were also, you can call them tribes, okay? And so you had the Macedonians, you had the Spartans, you had the Athenians, you had all, all of these other different Greek city-states that existed independent of one another. The only time these guys got together in Greece to fight was when they had a foreign invader come and fight against them, right? So like the Persians, you guys seen 300, right? Or, or you've seen like the, the, or you know about the Battle of Thermopylae. So that, that's a great example. I mean, all these city-states, they don't like each other, but as soon as the Persians knock on their door, they all get together and fight to drive off the enemy. And then as soon as the enemy's gone, guess what they do? They fight with each other. Um, that's the way, and frankly, that's the way history goes all the time with everybody. We like to fight each other. And so what happens, though, is there's a, there's a guy, Philip II of Macedon, was strong enough to subdue the other Greek city-states and unite them under himself. Not totally, but he was assassinated because, frankly, he was trying to unite all of these city-states. And his son took over. Anybody know his son's name? Alexander. Anybody know Alexander's last name? The Great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Alexander the Great takes over, and he is strong enough to unite everybody. And he ends up defeating a guy named Darius at the Battle of Galgamela, um, which is kind of in modern-day Turkey-ish area, Syria, Turkey. And, uh, and then Persia uh, ceases to exist. Greece um, rises up, and then in the midst of Alexander's conquest, he, he chooses not to live a very wise lifestyle. A lot of people think he drank himself to death. And then in 323, he died at a young age, which left a power void, and that power void was divided primarily between two generals. One of them was Ptolemy, who, who went down into Egypt and set up shop in northern Egypt, right? And the other one was this general named Seleucus. And Seleucus went north to Syria, and he set up shop in Syria. So you had the Ptolemies in the south in Egypt, and the Seleucids in the north in Syria. And guess who's caught in between Syria and northern Egypt? Israel is. So for the next couple of hundred years, what happens is the Egyptians push up into Palestine, and they impose, they impose taxes, they make the Israelites pay tribute to them, but most, for the most part, they leave them alone. And so from 311 down to about 200, 198-ish, the Egyptians ruled in Palestine, and the, and the Israelites were paying taxes to them to say, hey, we'll pay you taxes, just don't come and oppress us. And the whole time, Syria, the, the Seleucids are trying to push the Ptolemies back down into Egypt so that they can rule over the Israelites, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that, but basically the Israelites are caught in the middle. And the Syrians come down and they say, okay, at the Battle of Panium in 198, the Syrians ultimately conquered the Ptolemies and pushed them back to Egypt. And now Israel comes under the control of the Syrians. This is bad for a couple of reasons. One, the first two Syrian kings were pretty good about the Egyptian practice of just imposing taxes, but mostly leaving them alone. And so for a little while, the, for about 20 years, the Israelites enjoyed just, they just switched their, they switched their direct deposit from Egypt to Syria and said, all right, now we're paying you guys. 
And, and they did that for a while until this guy named Antiochus IV, and, and uh, he, he was given the, the infamous nickname Epiphanes, becomes the king of Syria. And what he does is, is he decides that he's God. And anytime a human decides that he's God, that's not a good thing. Especially when the guy has the power to um, impose himself in ways that are really dangerous for everybody else. So as soon as that happens, that's not good. Because what Antiochus does is he comes down and says, Hey, now all y'all, you guys have been worshiping Yahweh. And now you can't worship Yahweh anymore. You have to worship me. And so I'm going to order you to set up pagan idols all over your country to me, and your, your worship needs to shift from the worship of Yahweh to the worship of Antiochus IV. And, and frankly, most Israelites are like, okay, you know, just don't kill us. That's, um, that's basically their position. But there's a, there's a remnant and a faithful few that are like, no, that you just drew the line in the sand. Not going to do that, right? One of them was a guy named Metathius, and he was up in the, in the nor- northern part, close to Syria. And while the priest is about to sacrifice this sacrifice on an altar to Antiochus, he loses it. You can read about this in the book of Maccabees. But he loses it, loses his marbles, takes a spear, gorges the dude, and then throws him up on top of the altar, and then a fight breaks out, and, and thus begins what, what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. And so, in 165, the Maccabean revolt happens. Metathius dies, and then his son takes over this revolt, and his son's name is Judas. And he's given the nickname, it's an Aramaic word, the Aramaic word is Maccabah, right? Anybody know what Maccabah means in Aramaic? It means hammerer. Judas Maccabees, or Judas Maccabah, is the Jewish version of the Scottish William Wallace, which is why I'm like, somebody make a movie about this guy, you know, because he's awesome. So J- what Judas does is he, he grabs his band of rebels and literally kind of like the Braveheart, you know, um, they begin these guerrilla warfare tactics whereby they push back on the Syrian army and ultimately they grow large enough, just like in Braveheart, to put their own army together. And time after time after time, against all odds, they're winning, until ultimately the Maccabees end up going into Jerusalem where Antiochus IV had set up a pagan altar in the Holy of Holies, in the temple in Jerusalem, and he'd sacrificed a pig on top of it. That's the way you tick off the Jews. And so, um, and so what ended up happening is, is Judas goes in and he purifies the temple. Um, the Jews still celebrate this, right? This is what they celebrate the, um, when they celebrate Hanukkah, right? every December the 25th. They're celebrating the fact that Judas Maccabees and his band of guys had purified the temple. Um, That sets up, so now the Syrians are gone, and now Israel has a measure of independence. And so um, what ends up happening is the beginning of what's called the Hasmonean dynasty. And for about 100 years, this is this fits into this this like intertestamental period. Sometimes people will call it the silent period, although there's nothing silent about it, right? There's a lot of chaos going on. So I'm gonna rush through this really fast, but you you can you can get the picture. Around 134, Judas dies, his brother, his brother Simon takes over, and then Simon dies, and his son, John uh, Hyrcanus, takes over. John Hyrcanus begins to adopt Hellenistic practices and starts to be less faithful to Yahweh. And then John Hyrcanus dies, and his sons, he has three of them, one of his sons becomes the king and imprisons the other two. But then like a year later, that guy dies, and and his wife sets his two brothers free. This gets complicated. But his wife sets his two brothers who had been in prison free, marries one of them, and that guy that she married is a guy named Alexander Janius. And Alexander Janius, if you can't know it by his name, right, was real friendly with the Greeks. And so he wanted Greek influence. He wanted um, these things. And even though he was in, at the beginning of his life heavily influenced by this group of men called the Hasidim, which is the Hebrew word for faithful ones, even though he's, he's heavily influenced by the Hasidim to begin with, they eventually call into question his practice of adopting pagan 
you know, rights in, and bringing them into Israel. And so he shuns them and begins to oppress them. He oppresses them so much that when they rebel against him, he takes 800 of these guys and crucifies them in one day. And while they're being crucified, he takes their families and brings them out. Um, while these men are hanging on a cross, he brings their family and puts them in front of them and kills the guys' families in front of them while they're hanging on the cross. This is Alexander Janius. This is what he likes to do. And so, suffice it to say, Israel had a, uh, had a lack of good leadership. <laughs> All right? That's probably the, underst- or, you know, the understatement of the, of, of the century. But... But there's also these tensions that are going on within the Hasidim so that the men who come out of the Hasidim um, break away from Janius and they form a sect that's called the Pharisees. This is where the Pharisees come from. They're trying to be faithful to Yahweh in the midst uh, of an environment where, where there are, are sacrifices being made on all sides that are saying, no, we don't need to necessarily follow the law to a T. We need to create our own way, adopt Greek practices, kind of assimilate into the world that we know. And so what the Hasidim, who eventually become the Pharisees, are saying is like, no, that's not what we need to do. We need to stay faithful to, to Yahweh. And oh, by the way, this is complicated, but the short of it is we have the law, but then we also, be, uh, the Pharisees, begin to impose on the people what is called the oral law. So you have the written law, which is Torah and, and the prophets and, and the wisdom literature. And then you have, in the, in the minds of the Pharisees, you don't just have the written law. You also have the oral law. So the written law is like, um, you know, uh, honor the Sabbath and, and keep it holy. And the oral law is, here is how you honor the Sabbath. You don't do this. You don't work. You don't, and here's what it means not to work. Don't carry sticks. Don't walk more than a mile. Don't... You know, don't save your donkey on a Sabbath day. Like they're, they, they end up, the, the oral law ends up unpacking in very particular details their interpretation of the written law. And according to the Pharisees, the oral law is just as authoritative as the written law, which in a couple of hundred years when Jesus shows up is going to be a rubbing point. So remember that. The, there's, there's kind of this power struggle back and forth between the Pharisees and the Sadducees all the way down until more rulers die, more rulers come in, until finally these two brothers, you know, basically are bashing heads over the throne. And, and uh, both of them at this time, Rome was the power. And these, both of these guys appeal to Rome to say, hey, support me, support me, like I want to be king. And so Rome comes down and says, actually, we don't like either one of you. (laughs) And so both of you are going away, and we're going to sack Jerusalem, which is what Pompey did in 63 BC. And he installed a guy named Antipater, who's an Edomite. He wasn't even a Jew. And he, he uh, installs Antipater, who's, who basically was like, hey, I'll be your puppet king as long as you put me in power. And so they do. So a non-Jew is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, and then Antipater's son, oh, by the way, in 44, the consul of Rome was assassinated, right? Uh, Julius Caesar, et tu brute, you know, ugh, and he's dead. But then there's a power struggle in Rome between Octavian and Mark Antony. And Mark Antony flees to Egypt. Now you have Octavian in the, in the north and then Mark Antony in the south. And now there's a power struggle going on in Rome. So now the, the Jewish king is looking at the Roman power struggle and he's going, I don't know which one of you to support. I definitely don't want to support the loser. Because then the other guy's going to cut my head off. So flip a coin, <laughs> you know. Well, Antipater's son Herod becomes the king, and he supports the wrong guy. He supports, he supports Mark Antony, who ultimately is put down by Octavian. And then but ultimately Herod takes a bunch of gold, and he goes to Rome, and he appeals to him and says, Hey, please, recognize me as the king. And Octavian's like, All right, got it. You paid me off. So... That's what that just says in 37 B.C. In 27 B.C., Octavian actually becomes the emperor, which is the rise of the Roman Empire. He actually changes his name. It's it's, uh, Caesar Augustus. And then, between 6 and 4 B.C., in the middle of this just tumultuous craziness where 
there's been power transferred, there's the rise of political parties, the Pharisees don't like the Sadducees, they've been fighting with one another, there's been infighting, there's been oppression, there's been people who've been trying to stay faithful to the law, and they created an oral law that has on the same authoritative level as the written law. Um, Rome is the power at the time, and they're oppressing both parties um, under their thumb, and, and, and ultimately they're like, hey, um, let's take a census of all of this. And so a peasant girl, who's probably a teenager, is uh, at her prayers. And the Holy Spirit comes over her and says, the Holy Spirit will come over you and you will give birth to a son. And the girl is like, I'm your servant. And so out of wedlock, um, she was betrothed to a man who knew she was pregnant. I mean, you can't hide this stuff. So he knew that she was pregnant. And was going to dismiss her quietly because he's, you know, he wanted to protect her and himself. And an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, don't do it, man. Hang in there. And he's like, okay. And so to be counted among their people, which was the line of David, because Bethlehem is the house of David, they go down to Bethlehem. And um, while she's there, she comes to term and gives birth to a boy. And, and the man that we're going to study over the next six weeks is born into this craziness where there's, there's people who follow Herod called the Herodians. There's Pharisees. There's Sadducees. There's other people that I'll talk about in just a second. But just to give you a sense of, of if, if you're a Jew in the first century and you're in the middle of this context and you're thinking about who the Messiah, the son of David, is going to be, what kind of Messiah are you looking for? exactly right. You're looking for somebody that's going to do what David did, and you're going to bring the sword, and ultimately, you're going to drive out the Romans and maybe kill some of your internal enemies in the process so that you can set up your throne in Jerusalem and restore the glory that was. That is the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. If you think I'm joking, check this out. This is the Psalm of Solomon, not the Song of Solomon, the Psalm of Solomon. There's a bunch of literature that was written during that intertestamental period, and that, uh, that, that's a whole body of work. But this is one of those psalms that was written. It's a pseudepigraphal work because it's assigned to Solomon, but Solomon didn't really write it. Anyway, chapter 17, verses 21 to 24. See, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, at, at the time which you choose, O God, to rule over Israel, your servant, and gird him with strength to shatter into pieces unrighteous rulers, to purify Jerusalem from the Gentiles that trample her down in destruction, in wisdom of righteousness to drive out sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of the sinner like a potter's vessel, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the lawless Gentiles by the word of his mouth. Do you think they're looking for a guy that comes into a city riding on a donkey? No. And yet, here is this man who's born into this chaos and, and, uh, and, is, and is claiming things about himself that are totally extraordinary. And what's even crazier is he's, he's doing things about his claims that make people sit up and, and take notice. Um, what's crazy about this, Paul, Paul, oral law, written law, Paul was like, hey, you want, you want to see a Pharisee of the Pharisees? That's me. So Paul was deeply entrenched in this, and he has this conversion experience that's crazy. It, knocks, it literally knocks him on his butt on the road to Damascus. And then Jesus reveals himself to Paul, and Paul is like, whoa, this is a, this is a game changer. It's a paradigm changer. I'm not thinking about these things the same. And so Paul wrote this in his, in his letter to the Galatians. He said, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What you see through the history of Israel, and especially in that intertestamental period, is you see, frankly, what I've witnessed twice, because I have two sons, right? And my, my wife gave, uh, um, obviously, my wife gave birth to both of them. <laughs> it's like, duh. <laughs> But I witnessed the, the pregnancy, and then, and then um, things get really crazy during that transition time when that, when that baby's coming, man. Look out. <laughs> you know, things are getting crazy. And, and, and you, just, you just know. You know the time is coming. The, 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 the pangs of childbirth become more intense, and then it's like, hist it's like history spits out 
the Son of God. When the time had fully come, at the appropriate time when the sovereign of the universe was like, okay, now, this man shows up in Palestine. And we saw him. He walked among us. Right? He, he, he talked to us. He, 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 he shared his views with us. He had a message. Um, he had claims about himself. He was doing things about um, his claims that were extraordinary. And, and ultimately, he made himself vulnerable to us. So vulnerable that he was like, hey, look, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. I will get on the cross for you. Look, if you punch Jesus, he bleeds. Um, you can nail him to a cross. right? And I promise you this about him. You don't take a well-adjusted, politically correct, you know, love wins kind of person and strip him naked and beat him to a pulp and nail him to a tree. That's not what you do with that type of person. That's why I was saying at the beginning, if, if your Jesus doesn't press into you and make you uncomfortable, you're worshiping the wrong God. Frankly, what you're doing is you're worshiping yourself, imaged as this Jesus figure that you've made up in your own psyche. And so let, let's let Jesus be the Jesus of the text, of the Gospels, who says things that are like, whoa, if anybody wants to take part in me, he's got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. If any man wants to come after me, he, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world, but you forfeit your soul? What, what can you give in exchange for your soul? When you encounter Jesus, there is both a gentleness that would echo in a passage in Matthew's gospel in, in chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, where he says, come to me. Everybody who's weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Um, there's, there's, an, there's an inviting come to me about Jesus, and yet, as you come to him, what you begin to realize is, as he's drawing you in, what he's doing is he's killing your flesh. And that's really painful because your flesh goes way deeper and is way more integrated into, into, into who you are as a person than you will ever know. And so it's a, it's a, it's a sweet wounding following Jesus. There's a bunch of slides on, on education that I wanted, to make, uh, I wanted to make some points on. I may end up doing that um, next week as, as kind of a precursor into the claims of Jesus. Um, I hit on a little bit of the political landscape as far as who the Pharisees are, the Sadducees. The only point I would make about them is these guys are the aristocrats, the ones who are most friendly with the power people because they want to maintain their power. They were a little more liberal in their theology as, as the Pharisees. The Essenes were separatists. They were the guys that were like, we're out of here, peace out. We're going to go live in the desert, and through our piety, hopefully the Messiah will come. And then there were the Zealots, and those guys were like, man, I'm sick of this. Where's my sword? And they were actually kind of in guerrilla warfare tactics trying to take out the Romans, just like Judas Maccabees and his guys were prior to them. So next week, we'll cover a little bit about um, some of that education stuff because it's really important to understanding the story. But then we'll talk about, hey, what exactly did Jesus say about himself and why is that significant? Okay, you guys have a great week. If I can help you in any way, let me know. I'll stay here as long as you guys want. If you have questions or concerns and then look out for emails, we'll send your way. You guys have a great night.